right, join me if you would in John chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 35. As we work through this section, you'll catch the correlation for um, our study. John chapter 1. And what I want to do tonight, I I have a a lofty target, but I want to read through specific stories with, as I've mentioned, our intention is to kind of glean and gain from how Jesus taught his his followers, his disciples, believing that we can apply those principles in our own lives as well, kind of pulling from them. So in John chapter 1, verse 35, um, John the Baptist is, the, is who's being spoken of from verse uh, 18 on, and, and that's what we re, where we pick up, because it says, again, the next day, John, not the author John that, that God brought this letter through, but John the Baptist, stood with two of his disciples, And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and, seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. I want to pause right there just for a moment because there's some principles and some truths that are very beneficial. Notice that as John the Baptist has his followers, they are receiving from John the Baptist, but when John the Baptist looked at Jesus there in verse 36 and said, Behold the Lamb of God, they understood it was great to be with John the Baptist, but he was directing them to Jesus. It wasn't a person they were seeking in the sense of another man in the cry of their heart, even though they didn't even maybe consciously think, I'm looking for the Messiah. They, they wanted to see God's work in the world. They wanted it to be beyond just a pharisaical or a, a law-based uh, moral and ethical guidelines and restrictions. They, they kind of sense, I would suggest, there was more to it than that. And so when John, I could just call him JTB, John the Baptist directs their attention to Jesus, notice what happens. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. They were willing to receive. They understood, okay, we're going to go there. Now notice Jesus turned, seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? So he's like, what are you guys looking for? What do you seek? And, of course, you know, they seem to, almost changed the question, where are you staying? So I want to mention something here in that when Jesus turned and seeing them following and said to them, what do you seek? He was actually going to show them what they're looking for. They really didn't know entirely. They, they are just, said, what do you seek? It was a cross question that would generate a response, but it's many times when God's speaking to us through the word, what are you, what are you looking for, Dan? What are you looking for? And it's not in any way, um, well, it's not not generally uh, entirely corrective. It's more stirring. What, 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 why are you doing this? You know, why are you why are you doing that? And, and not not to probe us to, for self analysis, but maybe to soften our heart to receive because we get into routines and patterns and procedures, even like Sunday morning and Wednesday night and whatever our our disciplines are related to desiring spiritual growth. Those things can be kind of a pattern and a practice when we go through the motions. So we want to ask, well, what, what am I looking for? What do I seek? 
And, and they said to him, you know, where are you from? He said, come and see. And I believe that he's, he's, he's going to show them their, the answer to their question. Where are you staying? I'll show you. But he's also going to show them what they're looking for. Because in their engagement with him, they're going to see, because we know from Scripture, from the Gospels, that later declarations will be made such as, um, Jesus spoke the word as one with authority. His disciples observed that. Now, that doesn't mean that he had like a judge or a legal like tone or, or in delivery of his words. It means that he spoke it as one who believed it and lived it and knew it, which we know is understandable even from John 1, because in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And it goes on in verse 14 to tell us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So here he's speaking with this authority. And it's really interesting. When you meet somebody who speaks with religious authority, they have a different, um, I don't know, I don't know if I say firmness. There's a different tone. There's a different kind of like overbearing kind of flavor to it versus somebody who's not speaking with the religious authority, but a righteous authority someone who's a relational authority. Like Jesus, I believe there was that engaging with people in such a fashion because everything was complete. You and I, when we engage with people, it's not always complete, right? Can you agree? Sometimes your eye contact isn't there or your facial expression's there or you're, you're saying the right words, but you don't believe them because you don't like that person. So you're kind of faking things. So it's just not all complete. But imagine how, how Jesus engaged with people being fully, fully, fully complete, fully, fully the word present among us. And we're told that he, in, in Christ was the fullness of the Godhead, we read in, in Colossians chapter 2. So here we have them saying, him saying to him, come and see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him. That's why I believe they not only went to see the location, but they went to see, they ended up encountering the person. Because it is a kind of, an, can you agree it's an interesting question? He says, what are you looking for? Like, uh, where are you staying? <laughs> Why would you care? You've never, you just met the guy. Why do you want to check out his house or if he has one? So it's kind of an interesting th- thought. But anyway, it goes on to say in verse 40, one of the two who heard, who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Christ, the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. And the emphasis I want to bring from this particular portion is Andrew is seeking, but he's also speaking. He's seeking, but when he's introduced to Jesus, he shared what he received. Do you think what we know from Scripture about Peter's personality and and his expression and spontaneity and jokingly referred to secularly as the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth, you know, because the way he reacted to things, do you think he might have given his own brother a little feedback when Andrew said, "I, I think it's the Messiah, like, what do you know? I have no idea how they engaged, but it had to make you wonder, like, but he, he Andrew is not concerned about the response of Peter. He just simply shared what he'd received. He had received. Jesus didn't make the declaration, but but Andrew was able to engage in such a fashion 
that he's like, this guy is the one. I just sense it. I don't know if it's a spiritual revelation that we're not talk, told about, that, that, he, that God just opened his understanding to it or what. We're not really told. But he went and, 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 and spoke to Peter. It's this what I see. The Bible reveals that Andrew chose to stay close to Jesus because he not only had the initial engagement interaction, but he took that to his closest family members. And just basically all he did was, this is what I know. How do you know it's the Messiah? Because you just have to meet the guy. Well, why would I need to meet him? Did he, you know, what did he say on his business card? Or how would, you know, what would, what would the dialogue be? He didn't care. Listen, I'm just going to tell you what I know. We sometimes get intimidated or fearful, and we don't want to, maybe, I don't know why. I, well, a lot of reasons. We don't want to talk about the Lord. We'll, we'll talk about the concept and the theory and the thought of a creator or a God. But to speak about Jesus being God and the Lord, people are going to go, what, what are you talking about? Are you one of those people? Don't worry about it. Just share what you know to be true. That's all you got to share. Andrew just said, this is who he is. This is what I know. So think about this. Andrew spoke to people concerning Jesus. And I think we can see because he stayed with him that long that day. He spoke to Jesus concerning people. So he spoke to people concerning Jesus, his brother. He spoke to Peter. But he also spoke to Jesus concerning people. And I want to make that as a point in that pray for people, especially those who you have a rough engagement with or or maybe they're close and they're family members, friends, whatever, but they just maybe are struggling with this reality of who God is, who Jesus is. Pray for them. Speak to God concerning people, and God will open doors for you to speak to people concerning Jesus, concerning God. So, you know, Peter and Andrew, we learn our... Uh, in a fishing business together, and they work together with James and John, who are the sons of Zebedee. So there seems to be this, you know, little commercial fishery, fisherman kind of thing going on. And so we have now, we'll move along as we're going to get, move in towards uh, the uh, life of Peter. We're going to go to Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Specifically, verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. So I think you're going to see, I believe this is how it unfolded chronologically, that there was an incremental understanding about who Jesus was. We sometimes maybe think that as soon as they met him, they left everything and followed him. But it seems to indicate otherwise, because I believe historically and most frequently, when we encounter Jesus, we're curious and we go there, but it's incremental in our understanding about who he is. Agreed? There's that part where we get it. Now, granted, at the point where we're born again, when we've surrendered to him, when we agreed about our sin, we believe that he is the, the living God, the Savior for humanity, the Savior for us individually. There is an amazing experience that most happen, happens most frequently, and that is 
this like there's this peace that surpasses understanding. This weight's been taken off of our chest. Uh, there's an insight. I'm not talking about a glowing thing. I'm just thinking about an internal thing that happens. Some people happens almost like right now. They just it's like wow, this is amazing. I, mine wasn't that way. Mine was I just gradually understood that I was forgiven of my sins. It didn't happen. It wasn't like a one moment, wake up in the middle of the night. It wasn't a, a bush on fire out in the desert or whatever, you know. I mean, it was just a, it was like, oh, the Word of God says this. I believe the Word of God. I'm a child of God. It was it was interesting. So anyway, I want to encourage you because sometimes we, we just put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And here we see where Jesus invited them, follow me. And I love the language. They were fishermen. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. We don't have to convert cultural slang and jargon or whatever, but think about how Jesus just spoke to them where they are. I'll make you fishers of men. Because fishermen, you know, were not the most, that wasn't the most sought after profession in this culture. And so here they're being told, I'll actually give you a new sense of understanding to your vocation to your purpose, to your place. I can actually take what is seemingly just so-so in a society that you can encounter, engage, and connect with people and have eternal purposes, being fishers of men, which I think you hopefully you're encouraged by that when you see that's what we're being told. So what do they do? We see in verse 19 um, or 20, I mean, they immediately left their nets and followed him. It was an action, a willingness, and an obedience and that is an element of staying on course and not taking delays or detours. Is when we're prompted, when we're re- something's made known to us from the Word of God, then we want to respond in a manner that's appropriate to the revelation, appropriate to the Word that we've received. Uh, not going out on our own ability, but notice what they said. They just, they, this is, they left their nets and followed Him. And then it tells us, you know, that there was two other brothers, James and John, and son, uh, in the boat with, with Zebedee. They also follow Jesus. Many scholars believe, and I hold to this, not for I'm a scholar, but I just, in my processing, that some time has passed, a few weeks perhaps, between Matthew 4, this portion we read in Matthew 4, and where we're going to go next to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, specifically verses 1 through 11. In this passage, we're going to see that um, they're still fishing. And like I say, it's a point of discussion. I think discussion in the body of Christ is important. It helps to bring clarity if we guard against division. If we don't become definitive, it's my way or the highway mentality. The Bible tells you and me in Ephesians that as Christians, we have the unity of the Spirit. Do you realize that? But we're told in Ephesians, I believe chapter 5, to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So it means you fight to keep the unity of the Spirit. So we're going to disagree. We're going to divide and differ. We're going to differ. We don't have to divide. Anyway, my point is here, we're going to pick up in verse 1 of Luke 5, one of my favorite portions of Scripture. Uh, I've taught this so many times, probably the probably more than most any other portion, uh, you know, outside of a, you know, going through a regular book. Uh, or, you know, chapter by chapter. But let's just jump into it. So I would suggest that they met Jesus. He then invited them. So he, there's some time gone by. And then now 
they're going to have another encounter with him. So what was, as the multitude pressed about Jesus to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another word for Galilee, and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then Jesus got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put a little out from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. So we'll stop right there. Peter is now in the boat. He's been working. He'd fished all night. We're going to have that pulled here in a little bit. And they're now mending the nets. They're getting ready for the next time out. I mean, there's, you know, it's a lot of work. It's not sport fishing like what we get to go do. It's, it's commercial fishing, making a living at it. And so now he's asked to put out, because we know in other portions, Jesus had, had said to his disciples, have a boat ready, because the multitude would press in. And they would, it would really like, they want to be so close to him and hear things. So, and I believe also it creates a natural kind of amphitheater feel almost, because he goes out on the water a little bit and then speaks to those, say, in a form of like a cove or bay. So then naturally you have a, the shoreline and then, of course, it's sloping up in most areas around the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful play, way to be able to teach. But back to Peter. Peter has been all night fishing, been mending the nets, and now he's got to sit and listen to some guy talk. And I don't know how spiritual you guys are, but I've seen several of you men nod off just shortly after you sit down. I love being able to teach because I don't usually fall asleep now. Usually. You'll tell if I did. Anytime I'm sitting, like I learned a long time ago, when I sat down, when I was working in the truck shop and even other places, I would just, my body just kind of goes into to like nap mode, just like, so I would sit up front because it was a form of like intelligent punishment to myself because I knew if I sat close, I would either get called out if I nodded off or more so I didn't want to distract the speaker. So I did, it just, I knew I'm right there in the line of sight. Like, Darren, are you doing all right? You know, I mean, I didn't want to hear those words, you know. So I just imagine Peter being that kind of guy because we see he's just a pretty active guy. Well, Regardless, he's sitting there, and Jesus is is teaching. And now look what happens. When he had stopped speaking, verse 4, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. There's some really key things about staying on course and even a, a, a pathway uh, to spiritual maturity. We see it right here. He received simple instruction. We looked at this last week, and we even glanced at it again on Sunday. His disciples, the key to maturity is learning to receive s- simple instruction and obey that instruction. This isn't really complex, is it? The actual instruction, the actual action is not that complex. We're here, go there, and let down the nets. What makes it so complex? The next verse. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. It's complex internally, not externally. It's complex. It's like, and I, we don't know. I'm not trying to paint this as how it went, but, you know, a, a healthy speculation. I, let me re- remind you how I kind of process some things, and I, I believe this is healthy, and I encourage you. Have a healthy, godly imagination 
which involves a little bit of speculation, but keep it in the fence. Keep it in the framework of Scripture. Don't wander outside and think, well, it could have been this or this. Well, no, you're, 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 you're limited. You're, you're, you're bordered in by the very Word of God. But in that, you're allowed to think through and talk through what sits within this framework. So we have, you know, Peter, Simon, we've, we've toiled all night. He's it's respectful, master, even though Jesus is an itinerant carpenter or is a teacher with a carpenter background. A carpenter in that day worked with stones and with uh, wood and, you know, wasn't uh, like we would think of as a traditional, like, you know, Framer, home builder, the type of thing, handyman type. So anyway, here's Peter. We've toiled all night and caught nothing. I believe that's just a good, truthful statement. I believe it's good reasoning. We we we've, we've been out all night. When do you normally catch fish? This is when we would go. This is the highest probability for success. That's why they did it at night. That's why they did it the way they did. They did it usually in closer. Um, because as the fish will come in closer in the evening, depending on the different uh, lunar cycles and all the different stuff that people think make a big difference. Anyway, but he's saying to launch out into the deep at a different time of day, contrary to what this fisherman knows. But do you catch what Peter shows you and I? It's so beautiful. Nevertheless, at your word, I will. Nevertheless, like I, I don't understand how this is going to work. Every single one of us have this. I don't understand how this is going to work welling up within us and working through us. But there's a beautiful realization when we can say, nevertheless, at your word, I will. Nevertheless means <laughs> this is me, but when you say go, I'm, I'm going to go. When you say let down the nets, I'll, I'll let down the nets. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. I, I lean towards they, speaking plural, being addressed personally to Peter, Peter being the only one we're told is in the boat, that they would then be, in my way of thinking, Jesus and Peter. That Jesus is actually participating in the work, not just saying, watch what I'll do because we know that's actually his model. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we embrace, as followers of Christ, what Gail Irwin so beautifully presents in a book called The Jesus Style, Servant Leadership, learning how to serve, learning that he models servant leadership. It's a contrary statement to our culture in an executive, corporate, and even political leadership. It, to, to be a servant and, and actually be that part of leadership. It doesn't, you don't, it doesn't seem, how can you get from here to there? Because only those up here lead. It's like, no, leading by example. And many secular people have tried to take this truth and, and try to invert it, but you can't do it without the power of God, without the presence of God and the very um, forgiveness that comes from God that enables us to understand these promises and truths. So here, when they had done this, they caught a ton, I mean, there were, they're, it's a good haul. This is going to pay the bills for a while. Verse 7, so they signal to their partners, and this is where it gets interesting, in the other boat, to come and help them. And they, So they launch the other boat. They come and fill both boats so that they began to sink. Verse 8, Peter 
saw it, when he, this happened, he saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. It's an odd response. Can we agree? But what, why would, what, what, could, what could we speculate? What could we think through within this framework of this boundary of Scripture that we have? What, what could it be? I, I believe Peter knew himself. I would suggest that Peter knew his, his thoughts and how he just, all right, we'll do it. It ain't going to work. Because most of us have those thoughts. Well, I'll try, but I doubt it's going to work. Or we have these kind of little jaded kind of tilts. And when Peter seen the fruit, the truth, and realized who, what God was doing, what Jesus was doing in front of him, he owned his own issues. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. There was nothing sinful in throwing out the nets in obedience. There was nothing sinful that was manifested between Jesus having him send the boat out and him hauling in the great catch that we could see. But there was something that Peter knew. And there's things that you have, things that I know about myself, that you know about yourself. And when that realization and those things, because they do just come on like a flip of a switch sometimes, like he is God and I am not. And I love what Peter's, his example is, he just humbly says, you know, depart, man, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. He's saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. He's realizing that God can't, you know, hang out with, with, with sinful people unless those sinful people can be washed and cleansed and purified to be in the presence of a holy God. And so all this is probably going through Peter's Jewish background mind. It's so beautiful, though, because he says, you know, um, verse, verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. There was James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. And I believe this really is a point where there was a greater separation in regards to um, value and possession. So in other words, they're at a point now, like, you know, above all else, I want to know this Jesus. I want to know him more than the business being best and, and this and that. Those things they still would have to some measure. Now, they are going to leave. I believe at this point they made a separation. They shut down the business, so to speak. They turned it, off, turned it over to Zeb, and he took it from there. And so now we've got them forsaking all. Specifically, we're looking at Peter, and they followed him. Now they're going to kind of come in behind him and see what Jesus is doing, see how Jesus engages with people. So we have glimpses of, of Peter, this transformation. Can you agree? Because the person we start with, we see this transformation taking place. He, he's receptive. And we're, we're going to see some of the old nature a little bit. Why do I mention that? Learn and see this in your own life. Learn and see your resistance and your reluctance. But also see your receptivity how you have realized what God has done and, and you find yourself from here, but now you're over here going, I want more of him and less of me, as John the Baptist would say. Let's jump over to Luke chapter 8 from here. In Luke chapter 8, we're going to look at another one, gleaning and gaining, trying to take hold of these examples of, of Jesus bringing you and I as his disciples into a closer relationship, into a deeper understanding of his ways. In Luke chapter 8, 
We'll look specifically at verse 40. This is going to be more of a read-through. So let me just kind of go through this because it's two stories merged together. But you're going to see um, Jesus speaks openly and at ease, and yet Peter engaged respectfully. And, and, and you're going to see that Peter, James, and John have an experience with Jesus that is not because they were preferred. The Bible tells you and me, God shows partiality to no man. In other words, he doesn't just favor one over the other. But the truth is also, as as we draw nearer to him, he draws nearer to us. As we are closer to him, we see things differently. And there was the 12, there was the 70, there was the 12, and there was these three men, in part, specifically called for God's order, but I believe also they were men who would receive. There were many who were willing to seek. It wasn't just God picked them and said, I'll make them this way. They chose to be closer to him, and I want to encourage you in that regard. So we see in verse 40 of Luke chapter 8, So it was when Jesus returned that the multitudes welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitude strong Jesus. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her flow of blood stopped, and Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? Do you see Peter is identified as the spokesman here? You can see what's happening, right? I mean, here's this situation that comes to Jesus. He's now going to move his entourage, and the multitude that's been following him, maybe he changes direction. I believe there was a a sense if he's going to Jairus, he's going to go to this man. Notice he was the ruler of the synagogue, a religious person. So Jesus is going, and in the process, this woman violates the law, technically, because she was unclean because of her illness. She reaches forward and touches his garment. We can presume accurately that she thought, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I could maybe that'll be enough. And as she touches, because we know there was an element of faith involved, and this is a very fascinating study on its own, Jesus stops, says, who, who was that that just touched me? And basically, Peter's saying, who didn't? Who, are you, are you, really? I mean, look at, the, look at the crowd. And the other's like, yeah, Jesus, I mean, we don't understand what you're saying. And he goes, no, I, I, I will read it. I perceive, somebody touched me, but I perceive power going out from me. Wow, it's amazing that God, that Jesus really has this awareness of the needs and those who by faith are reaching to him. It's not a formula to get everything fixed. It's an awareness that he knows our needs. He knows us personally, deeply, and intimately. Verse 47, now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was immediately healed. Then he said to her daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. When when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, 
do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. I insert in my imagination, in my framework, an eye-to-eye, warm conversation with this man who just heard horrible news. Jesus got distracted. Other people needed help, and he couldn't get to his daughter in time. And Jesus, I'm sure, I'm confident, said, just keep your eyes on me. We're going to go to your house. We're still going. Now remember, Peter, they're all going through this. They're, they know where they're going. You can, there's a lot of emotion, a lot of things going on in this story. Verse 51, when he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the, of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. Oh, how much... How often humanity knows more than God, or so they think. These were probably professional mourners, which was common in that day. And so there was a big scene and all this the things going on. And, and Jesus, you know, he brings mom and dad and Peter, James, and John. He put them all outside, took her by the hand and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately And he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. (laughs) I always love it when he says, just don't make a big deal about this. Like, how do we not? (laughs) How can we make this a minor thing? You know, and obviously he's conveyed to them. Listen, don't don't use this as a a point of promotion. Don't make this a big thing to draw attention to yourself. I, I would suggest, just a suggestion, let the little girl have a life. Don't pray her around as the one that's raised from the dead. Let her have a life. You know, just don't make it. This is a big deal, but just keep it. You just kind of just let her live. And notice the other thing. God knows the needs. The little girl is brought back to life. And what's he say? She's going to be hungry. <laughs> Something so practical, so simple. It's like everyday stuff. It's like, man, this is so cool. Peter, James, and John have just seen the delay They've seen him engage with a woman that was not, there was nothing wrong with the woman in a sense of culturally other than she was treated like something's wrong with her because of her physical condition. And so he, they see how Jesus engages with this person who would have been an, out, an outcast in society. They're learning as his disciples how to engage with people. They're learning how to, 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 to deal with things that are beyond, like why should they even go to this house? And then Jesus does something beyond their wildest imagination. Let's move along over to chapter 9 in verse 32. Now we have here, and I'm just going to summarize it because of time, and you can dig in on your own later. We have what we call the transfiguration. And once again, you know, Peter, James, and John are taken up on this mountain, and they go up there to pray. And, and, and then as Jesus prays, he's he's what we call transfigured. He has a glow about him. There's an amazing stuff taking place. And we're told in verse 32, Behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They spoke of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But Peter, but Peter, but Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. 
And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and two of the men who stood with him. Why did I repeat that? They were asleep. Can you imagine waking up to this? <laughs> Seriously? They woke up, they're like, uh, I'm not fully awake yet. You know, it says when they were fully awake, when they fully realized it, notice what Peter does. When they were fully awake, they saw his glory, and two of the men stood there. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tents or tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Did you catch that? Not knowing what he said. He just went from not fully awake to kind of awake to partly awake to fully awake, sort of. And they said, we should... We should make a monument. We should make a test. We should have a tent. And then one for you and one for him. And yeah, that's what we should do because he didn't know what to say. Mark actually gives us a little insight. Mark tells us in his recount of this that Peter did not know what to say because they were afraid. And they were so afraid, like, what should we do? Well, respectfully, just shut up. Don't say anything. Just process the moment for a little bit. Like, what is, what is going on here? Because what Peter inadvertently was saying is we have Moses and we have Elijah and we have Jesus. So let's make this, this thing of the law and the prophets and, the, and this Jesus guy. You see the equality he's presenting? And, and then Jesus doesn't reprimand him. You know, he just says, no, Pete, let's not do that. Let's move to another story. We find this one in Luke 22. You can see I've just selected in Luke so we could kind of work through it. So many examples of Jesus' uh, model for to his disciples. But we go to um, Luke 22, specifically verses 31 to 34. You understand where we're at. Uh, They've partaken partaken in the Lord's Supper as he had implemented, instituted that. Um, And then they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And then in verse 31, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny three times that you know me. What do we have going on here? Well, what we have is this ongoing transformation of Peter. There's some changes taking place, but there's some things that got to go. Peter, we know from this passage, still retains a confidence in himself. Jesus has just said, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith would be strong. And notice what he said at the end of that prayer. When you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Because Jesus is basically, quite honestly, presenting to Peter, you're going to walk away this day. You're going to need to return to me. And Peter, you know, like you and I would probably be thinking, I'm right here with you. But internally... He's holding on to confidence in himself. And so we know some things are going to unfold. And Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows this day, you will deny me three, t- deny three times that you know me. There's no way Peter received that. 
There's no way Peter would believe that. We know that because he denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. When the rooster crowed that third time, Peter, we're told, he went out and wept bitterly. He realized what Jesus said was true, and it was heart-wrenching, and it was, it was healthy because this transformation is taking place. Let's look at the last portion for tonight in verse 39 of Luke 22. Coming out, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly than his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and he came to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. I would suggest to you the tone of his communication is, in verse 46, is similar to this. Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. It wasn't a harsh rebuke. It wasn't something to push them away. It was something to help them realize that some pretty serious times. What were they doing? They were instructed to go pray so that they don't give in to temptation. They don't draw towards the flesh. He said, just just go, you pray too. I'm going over here, you pray here. But notice what happened. He went to the disciples in verse 45. He found them sleeping from sorrow. Sorrow is one of those things that can just weigh you down and wear you out. Sorrow from a state of your own life. Sorrow from a situation of people around you. Sorrow is one of those things. It's a heavy thing to carry. And it can—it literally can just weigh you out. So I find it interesting that he says that they were sleeping from sorrow. What sorrow? I believe they realized that, the, that what Jesus has been saying in the back of their mind, not consciously considered per se, but in the back of their mind, they knew this is all going down. They understood that he was going to be arrested. They understood that these religious figures were going to get a hold of him. And this wasn't going to end well. Because they didn't understand the whole thing. They didn't understand what he said repeatedly, that he was going to rise from the dead and, and, and come back to life, and that he was the resurrection and the life. We have time. So... Let me just say this. We've studied this many times, and you can find it in our, on our webpage. Transformation is powered by God in the person of the Holy Spirit. We know Jesus was filled with his spirit when he was led into the wilderness for the 40 days, and there was that added element of temptation brought at him. He wasn't given into temptation. Um, we know that in John chapter 14 that we're told that the Holy Spirit, actually in through 16, that the Holy Spirit will lead us in all truth and bring to our remembrance the things that Jesus has said. We know the Holy Spirit, the, the Godhead, the triunity of God, the Holy Spirit, the person indwelling us, empowers us, enables us to resist temptation. We've seen in Colossians just last night that it's the grace of God. It, it comes through the person of the Holy Spirit 
that teaches us how to walk in truth and empowers us to do the same thing. So I say all that because in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we're told that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We're also told that in, in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, we, we brought into this awareness, there was a filling of the Holy Spirit. We're told in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, there's this exhortation, be filled with the Spirit. And the tense tells you and me to keep ye being filled. There's an ongoing necessity to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, you can look it up, it's that beautiful message of Pentecost, where Peter spoke boldly, this fisherman is now a new man. He spoke boldly and confidently of the words of the Lord, not of Peter, of what he could do, but now he's, he's speaking this, this great confidence and boldness. And, and let's just l- wrap it up. If you want to turn your attention to Second Peter chapter 3, verse 17, we're going to close with this prayer, this passage. But it reads in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this glance, this this overview, this fresh look at portions of Scripture that you've walked us through many times, and you've revealed these things to us, but now you, you compile them and you bring them almost by topic. But most of all, you speak to our hearts personally and privately. Words of hope, words of life, words of encouragement, that you are faithful, that you teach us, even through trial and adversity, as infirmity and difficulty and disability, death would knock at our door, you are faithful. For Lord, you have made it very well known that we will depart this life one at a time or ultimately as a group in the rapture. We will depart. We will see you face to face. There will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more crying. Oh, Lord, thank you. But until that day, Lord, we are joyfully, beautifully, and completely dependent upon you to form us and shape us, to change us into the people you'd have us to be, that somehow, for your glory, we could broadcast and and shine the light of truth. That we not be drawn down by our mistakes or our failures, our inabilities or what we feel we're lacking. But may you decrease and we increase individually. You know our needs, each one of us. Thank you, Jesus. You took this group of men, this group of men and women we read about in Acts chapter 1, the 120, and there's many more we know. You took people that trusted in you, and you, you changed the world. You bring hope and life. And so use us for that purpose in your glory, Jesus. Thank you so much. We ask that in your name. Amen. Amen.